This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and Afrelechen Hanukkah. Happy, happy Hanukkah. Thank you so much for coming on on this beautiful, delicious Hanukkah day. It's so nice outside, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to see you all. It's nice outside, but it's even nicer inside, because you guys are inside, and we're learning together and talking together. So I want to thank you all so much for coming out here on a Hanukkah afternoon. I also want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshiva Beth Yehud and Partners Detroit for enabling this Lunch and Learn, which is now just a learn, learn without lunch. But I guess I'm drinking coffee, so it's kind of like a Lunch and Learn, because the coffee is usually my breakfast and lunch. Anyway... Mm-hmm. Carol's got her coffee too. And then um, I want to thank the amazing staff over at Torah Anytime, which is an app and a website that has this year already disseminated over 10 million hours of Torah content. This year already. 10 million hours. So big thank you to them. It's an app called Torah Anytime. It's now an upgraded app, brand new with a lot of extra features. It's a website, www.torahanytime.com. And they do great work, and I appreciate them too. For uh, We're going to upload this, God willing, when we're done. I've actually been deplatformed from Apple Podcasts because someone sent a complaint. I had a class on, on, on Apple Podcasts. It was called Rosh Hashanah, Choose Your Own Adventure. And it seems like there's a Choose Your Own Adventure podcast. And they basically went to op- Apple, and they complained about me. And now you cannot find my Apple my podcast on Apple Podcasts anymore, but you can find it on Spotify, on Stitcher, and on Google Play, and on the, um, the Google, whatever, the, the Android podcast. So you can find it almost everywhere except for Apple Podcasts. We're trying to get Apple to reinstate me. But in any case, you can find this. This is called Burnham on the Parsha. You can find it on almost all podcast apps. Okay. Let us get down to Bitnet. First of all, it's great to see you. I haven't seen you guys in a couple of weeks. So thank you all for coming back. Um, I was in Israel, Baruch Hashem. I had the incredible honor and pleasure of being in Israel. We, we got there, and of course, now you know the country is on a lockdown again because of the Omicron. <laughs> the big Omicron variant, which doesn't seem to be really having very, very severe symptoms, but seems to be very transmissible. In any case, so they shut down Israel again. So thank God I was able to get in while the getting was, was good. And uh, I was there. I, was, I had the pleasure to be there with a large group of people. We, we did a bar mitzvah for somebody. And gave him his Hebrew name and his first aliyah to the Torah on the top of Masada, which was quite beautiful. We had a beautiful trip in general. The Israelis were so happy to see us. They were just so happy to see Americans coming and visiting once again, like I mentioned before. So many of our tour guides and so many of our, the hotels we went to were saying to us, like, we haven't seen an American group in 18 months. Which was just, it's heartbreaking in a way because... It means that so many brothers and sisters from all over the world, in America and France and wherever else, are, have not been able to visit Eretz Yisrael, our holy land. Like, we can't go home and visit our parents. And, our, you know, like everyone loves going home to their parent, to parental home. Our parental home as the Jewish people is Israel, and we just couldn't go. Anyway, so that was a, a powerful, powerful trip. And while I was on the trip, I visited with my daughter, Ora Burnham, who's in Eretz Yisrael right now, in seminary. And she is having an amazing time there and learning and growing with all the other young women in her incredible seminary, and Benosi Hodas it's called. And uh, she said that she wanted to tell me over a vart. She wanted to tell me over a dvart, not a vart, a dvart Torah, like a serious dvart Torah on Hanukkah. And we went out for dinner, and she brought her notes. And as we're sitting over dinner, she's telling me over this beautiful, beautiful idea on Hanukkah. And I'm like, okay, you need to get me those notes right away because I am going to be sharing this on my Thursday class, because it's such incredible, beautiful Torah 
on Hanukkah and specifically on the dreidel. So I could get a t-shirt that should say, I spent tens of thousands of dollars sending my daughter to seminary and all I got was this Dvar Torah, dot, 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 and it was all worth it. Now, of course, I got much more than just a Dvar Torah. I got a daughter who's sitting in Steiging in Israel, but if I only got a, a, this Dvar Torah, if my daughter went to Israel and all she came back with was this Dvar Torah and she said it to me with such enthusiasm as she did, it'd be worth it sending her to Israel and all that. Okay. So we're going to be talking about dreidel. The idea that she's sharing is an idea that she heard in her seminary, Benos Yehudas, from her rabbi, Rabbi Kohn, which, of course, is not very helpful in the Jewish world. It's like Rabbi Kohn. Um, There's a million Rabbi Kohns, but it's the Rabbi Kohn that teaches the Benos Yehudas. If you know more about him, you do. If you don't, you don't. If you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. Anyway, um, and most of it is based on the Bnei Yisachar, which is a great Hasidic master from Europe in the uh, latter half of the last millennia. Okay, so here we go. Let's talk about dreidel for a moment. Now, of course, everybody knows there's no biblical obligation to spin the dreidel. How do we know there's no biblical obligation to spin the dreidel? Because if there, it was a mitzvah de'oraisa, if it was a biblical commandment to spin the dreidel, then you would go to Israel and you would see marketplaces filled with stalls and all kinds of sizes and shapes of dreidels. And you'd have people taking the dreidels and looking at them under a loop to make sure they're perfect and they're beautiful the way they do with the Esra, right? But from the fact that we don't do that shows you that it's not a mitzvah de oraisa. It's not a biblical commandment. It's not even a mitzvah de rabbanan, a rabbinical commandment. So Hanukkah is one of the seven mitzvahs de rabbanan, right? There are 613 commandments in the Torah. And then there are seven rabbinical commandments for a total of 620. Fascinatingly, the, the Mishnah tells us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Asad HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to, tell, to give every person who learns 310 worlds. As the Pasuk, this is the very last Mishnah in Mishnayos. In the entire Mishnah, the Mishnah, which was the first form of the Oral Torah written down, the very last Mishnah, which is, I believe, in Uktzin, says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to give everybody who learns Torah 310 worlds. And they bring the Pasuk, it says, Lahanchil Laohavai Yesh, which means I've got plenty to give to those who love me. And the word Yesh, Yud and Shin, is Gematria 310. Shin is 300, Yud is 10. So where does that number 310 come from? So the rabbis say, there's 620 mitzvos, there's 613 biblical commandments, and there are seven rabbinical commandments, so 620 altogether. When you learn Torah, you get the credit as if you perform the mitzvos, but you split the credit with your wife who enabled you to learn. So you get 310, she gets 310. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so it's not a biblical commandment. It's not a rabbinical commandment, because the rabbinical commandment is to light Hanukkah menorahs. That is a rabbinical commandment, along with the mitzvah of lighting the Shabbos candles is a rabbinical commandment. Along with the mitzvah of Purim, is a rabbinical commandment. Along with the mitzvah of washing your hands is a, before eating a meal, is a, biblical, a rabbinical commandment. So there's seven rabbinical mitzvos. There was many things the rabbi said, don't do, out of caution. That's called a siyag, right? Or a takana. There were many, many, many things the rabbi said, don't do, out of caution. But there was only seven mitzvos they said that you proactively have to do. One of them is lighting candles on Hanukkah. But one of them is not playing the dreidel. So it's not a Doraisa, it's not a biblical commandment. We would be going like this and making sure the dreidel was perfect. It's not a rabbinical commandment. It's a minhag, it's a custom. But 
A minhag of the Jewish people is holy. A minhag of the Jewish people is always going to be very holy and very, very deep. And we're going to try to understand today what is the depths of playing dreidel and why is playing dreidel actually a lot more important and a lot more powerful than you would otherwise believe. So if you're ready, my recommendation to you is strap in. Seatbelt yourself with a five-point harness because we about to go crazy here. Okay, so get ready. We're going to hit blast off and we're going to be going. So this is all nice and calm, but here goes. You're ready for the, why we do the dreidel. Here it goes. If you want to understand the dreidel, we got to go back to Jewish history. Everything in Jewish history, the first book of the Torah, the book of Genesis, the book of Bereshis, is basically a bunch of stories. Stories about Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov and the Shvatim and the 12 tribes and they sold their brother. What's, what's going on? Why do we have an entire book of the Torah being story time with the Bible, right? It seems like weird. Like, isn't the Bible supposed to be a book of laws and how to live your life? So no, the answer is, the sages tell us, Nachmanides talks about this, is that we have a very important concept in Judaism, maise avos simon labanim, the actions of the fathers are a very clear sign of what's going to happen to the children. If you want to know what kind of challenges you're going to go through in life, Read the stories that happened to your great, 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 great grandparents, and you'll understand what you're going to go through. You'll also understand the wellsprings of the wellsprings of strength and energy and power that you have. The fact that so many Jews pick up and move to Israel, like my parents did, and they didn't do it for financial reasons, right? People say, if you want to know how to make a small fortune in Israel, move there with a big fortune, right? That's the joke they say. So people don't move to Israel because they're going to make a fortune there. People move to Israel knowing it's going to be difficult and challenging, but they do it. Why do they do that? Because they are the great-great-great-grandchildren of Avram Avinu. And God told Avram Avinu, leave everything behind and go to Israel. And he's like, you got it. And he did that. So when we, as a Jew, a Jew today in 2021, decide to pick up and move to Israel, it's because he's got the Avram gene inside of him. If we want to understand everything that goes on in our lives, read the stories of the Torah, because Maise Avos, the stories of our forefathers, are Simon Lebanon are a sign for what's going to happen to the children. Now, Avram is the first of the forefathers. So what he goes through is going to be the most important, because anytime you see something in the Torah for the very first time, it's going to be very, very fundamental. The Torah, if you want to, like on a Kabbalistic level, if you want to understand anything, you look at the first time it shows up in the Torah, and that will be very, very instructive about it. So if you want to understand anything, you want to understand the, the, our, our forefathers, look at Avram's life. So Avram, and we're going to see now, get ready for the parallels, because it's going to just it's going to blow your mind. Get ready, okay? Avram goes down to Egypt because there's a famine. Oh, Jacob and the Bnei Israel, the children of Israel, go down to Egypt because there's a famine. Avram's wife gets taken captive. The Jewish people get taken captive. Pharaoh and his household were deeply afflicted when they kidnapped Sarah with great plagues. The Egyptians were afflicted with great plagues after they enslaved the Jewish people. Avram leaves Egypt, Berchush Gadol, with great wealth. The Jewish people leave Egypt with great wealth. Are you guys seeing the parallel over here? Yeah, good. You should. (laughs) Because it's there. It's blatantly obvious. Now, then Avram goes back to Israel. And we have a whole bunch of different stories there. But one of the important stories that happens there is that Avram ends up 
this story where we're going to talk about today a lot is that he goes to battle with four kings. The Torah tells us this whole story how there was a massive war, a clash of empires. Five kings were allied on one side. Four kings were allied on the other side. The five kings and the four kings fought for over a decade. And in the end, the four kings won. Okay? Now these four kings, they also captured Lot, who was Avram's nephew. Okay, Lot is a very important character on a whole lot of levels. But for now, we're just going to leave him as Avram's nephew. They captured Lot, who was Avram's nephew. But I'll tell you this much. Lot is the great 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 grandfather of Mashiach. Right? Out of him comes Ammon and Moab. Out of Rus, the Moabite, comes David, the Messiah, the king of, of the, the beginner of the, of the beginner of the Davidic dynasty, which will have its final conclusion with Mashiach ben David. So Avram knows he needs to go rescue Lot. Lot's really important, right? Lot carries the messianic seed inside of him, so to speak. So Avram goes to get Lot, okay? I want to read to you the verse over there, okay? The verse is, the Pasuk is, Bereshis Yodalad Yodalad. Vayishma Avram ki nishba achiv. And Avram hears that his brother, his brethren, his kinsman, his relative, was taken captive. Vayarak eschani chav. And he armed his trained men, Yelide Beso, those who were born in his house, Shmona Aser Ushlosh Meos, 318, by Yirdof Ad Dan, and he chased them until Dan. Avram went to battle with his 318, and he was miraculously victorious. He went up against four kings with four standing armies that had just defeated five kings with five standing armies. Okay? And he goes up against them with his 318, and he's somehow victorious. Not only is he victorious, he chases them all the way to Dan. Now, where is Dan? Dan is in the northern part of Israel. Okay? It's where the tribe Dan would later be given the land of Israel. A couple weeks ago, just like literally maybe 10, 12 days ago, I was in the section called Dan, where there was a massive fortified city that dates back to about 3,800 years ago, right around the time of Avraham. And, fascinatingly, at the entrance to that fortified city is the oldest arched gateway in the world. Did you know that? You thought the Romans? They were the ones who invented the arch? Nah. Fake news! We already have an arched gateway from the time of Avraham Avinu. So it's just really possible that literally Avram Avinu chased them all the way to that fortified city, which is now the, the site of the oldest arched gateway in the world and is an archaeological site in Israel. Amazing. And I was able to see it a week and a half ago. You can't see it now because Israel shut down unless you're there already. So Avram has this incredible, stunning victory. Now this victory is actually a portend a signifier of a much deeper story. Remember we said everything that happens to Avram is going to happen later to the Jewish people. And we saw the famine, the Pharaoh, the captivity, coming out with wealth. Well, one thing that happens to Avram is that he fights with four kings. Mind you, we, the Jewish people, are going to go through what's known as the Dalid Gullios, the four exiles. Who are the four exiles? The four exiles are Babylonia, Babel, 
Persia and Emedia, Paras and Madai, Yavan, Greece, and Edom, Rome. Let's go through these four exiles. What did they do to us? And where are we standing right now? Number one, Bavel. Bavel destroyed the first temple. They burnt down the first Beis Hamikdash. That was in the year 586 before the Common Era. Okay, so we're talking about 25, 2600 years, uh, yeah, about 2500 years ago. Um, 2600 years ago, roughly. Okay, 2600 years ago. Then, while we were in exile, the Babylonians were defeated by the, the conquest of Parasu Madai, and they also had it out for us. That was Achashverosh, right? The king of Parasu Madai, the king of Persia, Media, and his henchman, Hatman, of course we know, who wanted to kill us and almost was successful at committing a total genocide of the Jewish people. Then we go back into Israel. We go back into Israel, and lo and behold, in our own land, we are subjugated by the Greeks. Right After Alexander the Great dies, Alexander the Great left the Jewish people alone. Fascinating story in the Gemara about how he met with Shimon, uh, the, the, the Kohen Gadol, and he actually, Alexander the Great, the conqueror of the world, got off of his horse and went and bowed down in front of the Kohen Gadol and said, I see this man in battle every night before battle, and that's how I know I'm going to be victorious. And he left the Jewish people alone. He went on all the way to India, where he died, mysteriously, perhaps poisoned, according to many historical accounts. He dies, and then his kingdom, his vast kingdom, is split up into three parts. And the Seleucid Greeks, which is one of those three parts, invade Israel. And they exile us, so to speak. They subjugate us in our own land. And then there's the final group, which is Edom, which is Rome. They come in. They burn down our second Beis Hamikdash, and they schlep us into exile, and we've been there ever since. Okay? Those are the four exiles the Jewish people go to. Kabbalistically, Avram facing down the four kings is a portend, a foreshadowing of the Jewish people facing down the four exiles. But wait... There's more. After Avram is successful at fighting this off, who comes out? Malki Tzedek, the king of Yerushalayim, comes out and brings Avram meat, sorry, brings him wine and bread and gives him blessings, which is a signifier that when we beat, when we finally finish off these four exiles, these four kings that we face, the four cultures that the Jewish people has had to contend with, we will once again have a rebuilt Yerushalayim where we will bring wine and bread, wine and meals to God, where we will once again bring karbanos, we will bring sacrifices to God. And of course, of the sacrifices, wine was brought with most sacrifices, bread and, and flour was brought with most sacrifices. So all the connections are ringing over here. Now the question is, how do we beat the four exiles? This exile is now going on now, right? The first one was like 70 years, right? Actually, the first two combined were 70 years because Bavel only lasted a certain amount of years after the destruction of the temple. And then they were taken over by the Persians and the Medians. We came back after 70 years. And then the Greeks were in Israel for a couple, about 100 years, whatever it was. This Roman exile that we're in right now is 2,000 years. How do we get out of here? Knock, 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 knock. Will you let me out of here? You guys remember that little toy, that little box you shake up, right? Knock, knock, knock. Will you let me out of here? How do we get out of here? 
How do we get out of this exile? So if you want to understand how to get out of this exile, what do we got to do? Very simple. We got to look back at how to Avram be. The Maise Avos Simon Labanim. The actions of the fathers are assigned for the children. How did Avram get out of this exile? How did Avram beat the four kings? So let's go back and see what it says. And Avram saw that his kinsmen, his relative, was taken captive. And he armed his trained men. Those born of his household, 318. So what does this look like? In most like these action movies, you know, you have this guy who's like a, a retired tough guy. He used to be like a crazy Navy SEAL, and then he's retired, and he's just trying to do his work as like a factory worker in, in middle America, and then somehow his like daughter gets kidnapped by some kind of terrorist, and then suddenly like he goes into his house, and he opens up like this hidden wall, and he walks into this armory with like every kind of weapon in the world, and bazookas, and he just starts like arming up, and he walks out with like... Two, you know, duffel bags filled with like machine guns and bazookas and whatever kind of possible, you know, maybe a small tank, you know. So like, what exactly, how did this look? How did Avram arm up his trained men? Like, what exactly did he give them? That's number one. And number two, what exactly is 318? It's like a weird number for a troop, you know. So Rashi comments on this. Rashi says, no, no, no. Don't read his trained men, rather read it as Chanichoksiv. If you actually look at the way it's written in the Torah, um, it, it says his trained man. He actually only had one trained man. This is not 300. This is not the Spartans fighting, you know, with their 300 soldiers against the horde of the other army, right? This is not that movie. No, no, no. This is more like Batman and Robin. This is Avram and one man. That's all he had. Chanicho. His one trained man. Ze Eliezer. Says Rashi, quoting the Medrash, this is referring to who? Eliezer. His faithful servant. Remember the Eliezer that later he would send to go find the Shidduch for his son? That was like his faithful servant, Eliezer? That's who his army was. He was an army of two. Avram and Eliezer. Shechincha. Why is he called Chanichav? Why is he called trained in? Shechincho lemitzvos. He was mechanechim. He educated him in mitzvos. What does it mean to educate somebody? Rashi here strangely starts telling you what does education mean. Vuhu lashon haschalas kenisas haadam okli luumanos shahu. The word chinuch, the word education, means the preparing and the, the, the starting of something into either a person or a vessel into what they're meant to do. So for example, if you have a frying pan, the very first time you use that frying pan to fry whatever it is, latkes, fried salami, you know, uh, scrambled eggs, maybe sunny side up, whatever you, whatever you use your frying pan, your frying pan is now an educated frying pan. It has gone through its chinuch. Avram takes his Eliezer with him. Now hold on a second. If it's Eliezer, how do you get to three? Why did the Torah say 318? Tells us Rashi, Eliezer is the gematria of 318. Do the math if you don't trust me, or alternatively, you could just trust me. Eliezer is gematria 318. So, Avram goes with his army of one, him plus one. <laughs> it's Avram and his plus one. Yeah, you guys come to battle? Yeah, I'm going to bring a plus one. You're going to bring a plus what? 
Yeah, just a plus one. Oh, come on, you got to bring... No, no, just a plus one. They go to battle. Now, now, the next question we have to ask is, if it's talking about Eliezer, why doesn't it say? And Avram heard that his kinsman was kidnapped, and he took his man, Eliezer. Why does it say he took his armed, trained man, 318? Why are you calling Eliezer 318? Let's say, for example, right here on the Zoom right now, is Chaim Safran. For example, Chaim is Begematria 68, right? So I don't say, hey, 68, what's going on? In the early days of Zoom, if you remember, like, there were always like numbers by people's names until people figured out. You remember that? Like, yeah. So I, I don't say, hey, what's up, 68? How you doing? <laughs> Yo, 68, what's up? Right? I, I don't say that. So why is the Torah saying that? It's like, an album brought his trained people who do you bring? Yo, 318, three get over here, yo. 318 versus everybody. You know, Detroit, we have like these t-shirts. I don't know why. Detroit has these t-shirts that say Detroit versus everybody. Right? This is back in the day when, like, when Detroit was like fighting to build itself back as a city. So it became a thing. There was like, the first there was the t-shirts that said Detroit hustles harder. Then it became Detroit versus everybody. I, I, don't, I don't know why we need to be that way. Uh, but then there was also the t-shirts that say 313, because the area code for Detroit. 313 versus everybody, right? Because they want to say, like, only the real deal, like, the people really in Detroit, not like the 248s, not the suburb people, not the softies in the suburbs, just the real deal, 313. 313 versus everybody. So here it's like, Avram and the 318 versus everybody. Like, why are you calling Eliezer 318? That's another question. We'll get back to that in a second. I want to tell you about a Gemara in Masechtas Sukkah. In Tractate Sukkah, page 31a, Lamed Aleph, Lamed Aleph. The Gemara there is talking about the following concept. If I steal something from you, okay, and I change it and you give up on it, I don't have to give you the actual item itself. What does that mean? For example, let's say I steal from you a, a log, and I turn it with intricate carvings into a beautiful, beautiful chair, with all kinds of intricate carvings, dragons, and you know, all kinds of you know, f- fruits and flowers. And you say to me, hey, buddy, g- give, me back my, give me back my log. And I'm like, uh, your log is not here anymore. It's unavailable. You're like, yeah, but you've you got to give me back your log. Give me back my log. I'm like, dude, it's, it's a chair now. I'm like, all right, give me the chair. I'm like, no, no, no. Your log is worth $80. That chair, I spent 97 man hours on that sitting in my garage on weekends, listening to music and, and, and sculpting this thing, that thing is worth, that's a $1,000 chair right there. Do I need to give you back the chair? The answer is no, okay? I've acquired it through something called Shinoi Maisa. I've changed what it is. What about if I didn't really change it, but I put it somewhere where it's really hard to get to? For example, let's say I stole a log from you and I used it as the support beam for my entire house. And now my entire house is built. So I didn't really change the log. I didn't really change the log. But I did. It's very hard to get to. Because in order for me to take that out, it's like Jenga. You pull out this little log over here and the whole house comes crashing down. Do I have to take out the entire house just to give you that one log? And it's a... Chazal it's a, it, say you don't. It's a takana that you don't have to return it. Why? Because otherwise no one's going to do tshuva. If I have to break down my entire house to give you back your log, I'll never do repentance. I'll never repent for stealing. So they say, you could just give them the value of the log. So there's a story in Sukkah 
where there was a time, there was, there was, there was a, a time, there was a position in the Jewish people called the exilarch. What is an exilarch? Okay, you know what a monarch is? A monarch is, the, word, the prefix mono is singular, right? A monarch is a single person who rules a country. An oligarch is a group of people, right, who r- rule a country. What is an exilarch? An exilarch is he who rules the exile. There was literally a Jewish position, especially when the Jews were in Babylonia. There was a Jewish position called the exilarch. And what it meant is, you were the king of the Jews in exile. You had the power to levy taxes. You had the power to punish. You had the power to imprison. That was a title that was called the Reish Galusa in Aramaic. Now, during the times, just like we had, there were times in Jewish history where we had very corrupt Kohanim Gdolim, very corrupt high priests. There were also times where the people working in the household of the exilarch, the people working in the household of the Reish Galusa, were corrupt. And they used to use oppressive tactics on people without the knowledge of the Reish Galusa. And there's stories how they imprisoned people, all kinds of crazy stories. So... Says the Gemara in Sukkah, This old woman who comes before, I'm sorry, it's a Safta. Safta in Aramaic means old woman. In Hebrew, it just means grandma. So if you're a Safta, I'm not saying you're an old woman. Just, I want to clarify that, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so, This older woman who came in front of Rav Nachman, Amrle, she said, She said, Rabbi, the exilarch, and all of the rabbis that are hanging out with the exilarch, because he used to kind of hang with a posse of very uh, you know, important people, prominent people, they're all sitting in a stolen sukkah. Because the Reish Kalusa's servants, they came to my house, and I had this massive beam, and they stole it from my backyard. I was going to use it to build a house for my son or whatever. I was, I was going to use it. I was going to use it for something. I was going to sell it. Whatever it was, they came. They stole this beam, and they made it as the main supporting beam that's holding up this massive sukkah. So they're all sitting in a stolen sukkah. All the greatest rabbis are sitting in a stolen sukkah. Hello, Ashkach Bar of Nachman. Rav Nachman said, I'm sorry, you can, get, you can get the money. Give me a receipt. Give me an invoice. We'll give you the money for it. But we're not going to break it down. So she was very distressed. She was very distressed that he was ignoring her, so to speak. He wasn't addressing. See, he wasn't ignoring her, by the way. This is a great lesson in life. He wasn't ignoring her. He just wasn't addressing her concern in the way she wanted to be addressed. <laughs> How many times do we get offended at a customer service person because they're like, I'm sorry, I, I can't process that return. No, no, no. After you bought a pair of shoes and wore them for six months, I know they're, they're pinching your feet now, but like, that's just not a me problem. It's a you problem. I can't accept your return. But if you were expecting that you're going to accept your return, you're like, what do you mean? But you have a policy. No, no, no. You start getting angry at the customer service person. They're like, dude, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not ignoring you. I feel your pain. I'm sorry. But like, I, I can't process a return on an item that's been worn for six months. So this lady gets angry at Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman wasn't ignoring her, but Rav Nachman wasn't giving her the response she wanted. She wanted that they should pull out the supporting beam, let the whole sukkah crash down or take it down with an engineering team and rebuild the sukkah from somewhere else. And Rabbi Nachman was like, I'm sorry, this is not, that's not the halacha. We don't got to do that. It's considered like you gave up on it. And we don't give, you know, it's considered yish. One of the factors 
about when you're allowed to keep other people's property, whether it's stolen property or lost property, is yiyush, is when you give up on it. Okay? So again, when you steal something from somebody, you can either have shinoi maisa, where you change it from a log into a table or a log into a chair, but you can also have what's called yiyush v'shinoi rishos, which means it's changed hands and the person gave up on it. Now I no longer have to return you that item, I just give you the money for it. So, Rav Nachman was not answering her. He was like, listen, you gave up. You know you're not getting this. You, you gave up on it. You were meyayish on it. You gave up on it. So what does she say to him? Amrleh! She says to him, A woman whose father had 318 servants is crying out to you and you're not listening to me? What's wrong with you? Rav Nachman said, I hear you. You still only get the money for it. Send me an invoice. We'll give you the cash immediately. What's, this, what's, what's she saying? What is she saying? A woman whose father had 318 servants is screaming to you and you're not giving to me? What, what is she saying? What does that have to do with your father? I understand you're... Okay, so you're saying you're a Jew. So you're a great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Avram Avinu. So am I. So are all of you. What are you saying exactly? What's this? I'm a woman whose father had 318 slaves. Why are you not listening to me? What does this mean? So we need to understand the secret of 318, because 318 here is mysterious on many levels. Number one, why does the Torah call Eliezer 318 instead of saying, and Avram went with Eliezer to fight off the four kings? Number two, and again, this is the battle that ultimately is victorious over the four kings, which is going to be a very powerful secret to us overcoming the four exiles. Number two, why does this woman say to him, I'm a woman who had 300, my father had 318 servants. Who cares how many servants your father had? So here, my friends, is the deep secret. Here is the linchpin. The word in Hebrew for giving up on something, the word in Hebrew for despairing of an outcome, and just saying, ugh, whatever, it's never going to happen, that word in Hebrew is yi-ush. What is the gematria of yi-ush? 317. What does 318 represent? Above Yish. We Above Yish means we don't give up. I'm not subject to your Yish. I'm not subject to your cynicism. I'm not subject to your despair. I'm not subject to your anxieties. I'm not subject to falling prey to the I can't do it because you feel that way. And now we start to understand. First of all, what's the woman saying? She's saying, you think I gave up on that? You think I gave up on that beam? You think I had Yish? No, no, no. I'm a granddaughter of Avram Avinu. We're from the people. We don't give up on stuff. We don't give up on stuff. My father had 318 servants. My father lived his life with 318. My father lived his life. My father, Avram, lived his life without giving up on anything. I didn't give up on that beam. I'm still expecting that beam back in my house. I've not given up on it. Don't think that you are Kona it. Don't think that you've acquired it through Yish. I never gave up on it. But much more importantly, the story of Avram. What does Avram go to battle with? When Avram is going to battle with four kings to go rescue the seed of the Mashiach. Right? He's going to rescue Lot. Lot has the seed of the Mashiach in him. And Avram is now going to rescue Lot. What does he take with him? What does he arm himself with? Bazookas? AR-15s? M-16s? M101 Abram tanks, F35 
strike fight fighters, you know, fighter jets, the Iron Dome missile system, the Merkava tank. No, he takes with him 318. He takes with him the concept of we do not despair because God is on our side and we have infinite power. And the minute we recognize that God is on our side and therefore we have infinite power, nothing can touch us. That's how Avram trains his men. That's how Avram fortifies his men. When you're going up against four kings... It doesn't make a difference if you're 1 plus 1 or you're 1 plus 318. There's no way you're beating four kings with their standing armies. You can have a thousand people. There's no way you're beating four armies. But when you recognize that we are above despair, when you recognize that Yosh is 317, but we go above that, we never despair, we never give up, we never think it's hopeless. Because we know that we're fighting with They have their chariots and they have their horses. We go fight with God and God is infinite. And when we recognize the power of going to war with God, there's no yish. There's no despair because we can do anything. And sure enough, Avram and Eliezer, two people, go to fight a standing army of four kings and the Medrash tells us they just start picking up dirt and throwing it. And in the sky, Hashem makes miracles and that dirt turns into arrows and spears. And Avram and his plus one, Avram and his trusty sidekick, Eliezer, are able to chase down four armies all the way from southern Israel or middle of Israel all the way to Don to the north of Israel. Why? Because they didn't give up. Why? Because they didn't despair. Why? Because they knew they were more powerful because they were fighting with the God force. And when you're fighting with the God force, it's infinite. You want to know how we're going to beat the four Gullios? You want to know how we're going to f- beat the four exiles? Look at the life of Avram. Misa, Avo, Simon, Lebanon. The stories of the fathers teach you about the children. How did Avram beat the four kings? That's how we're going to beat the four Gullios, the four exiles. Avram beat them by not being afraid of them. By saying, I don't care if you have more advanced armies than I. I don't care if you have much more people than I have. I don't care what the odds are. I'm fighting with God and therefore I have infinite power. And if you can do this, you can make it through all four exiles. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Medians, the Greeks, and even the Roman exile. This one we're in for so long. So that's the secret of 318. That is the secret of fighting through the Gullus. The very first time, we mentioned before, if you want to understand anything, look at the first time it's mentioned in the Torah. The first time the idea of education is mentioned in the Torah is right here. Avram prepared Eschanichav. Avram prepared those that he had educated. Avram prepared those that he had trained. You want to understand what the most important lesson you can train anybody is? You want to understand, remember, the word chinuch means to educate and to start something into what, it, like Rashi told us, the word chinuch means haschalas knisas ha'adam okli lo'umna shahu. It's beginning somebody or a, or a vessel on what it's supposed to do. If you want to train your kids in chinuch, What's the most important thing that you can be mechanech your children? The most important thing that you can give your children is the education 
that they can achieve anything if they're willing to achieve it with God, if they recognize that they are working with God, that they don't have to be afraid of any odds, they don't have to be afraid of any statistics, that they can do anything as long as they recognize that they're powered by God. And this, of course, explains how Sarah and Avram, these people are impossible. They go out to war against four kings. Avram, with his plus one, goes out to war against four kings. Avram and his wife, who had not had children, and they're, they're, at this point, 99 and 89 years old. And they're told that they have a, they're going to have a child. And Avram's like, awesome. I was hoping this was going to happen. You were hoping it was going to happen? I think you're a little late. You're kind of past your prime a little bit. And your wife is past her prime by many decades. But they never gave up. They never despaired. Because they were above Yish. They were above despair. Despair is 317. They educate their house with 318. That's why the Torah tells you the number of Eliezer, which is much more important than the name of Eliezer. It's 318. That's the secret. Now let's move back to the dreidel. The dreidel has four sides. Nes, Gadol, Haya, Sham. Now a very important thing. I know you're like, well in Israel it's really Nes, Gadol, Haya, Po. Because you learned that in Hebrew school. Guess what? It's fake news. Right? What do I mean by that? Nes, Gadol, Haya, Sham is the actual sanctioned language for the dreidels. The, the Nes, Gadol, Haya, Po was started after like, Israel was retaken by a secular Israeli Zionist who's like, why should we be saying Sham? We're here now. We're in Israel. But Sham does not represent only like, in the physical land of Israel, but rather in the spiritual rebuilt. The same way we say, L'shana Bab Yerushalayim Habanuyah. We want to be back in Yerushalayim. Some people would just say, L'shana Bab Yerushalayim. We want to be back next year in Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is there. We're referring to the real Yerushalayim. V'sham na'vadcha b'yira. There we will serve Hashem with fear. Right? The word Sham doesn't just represent the physical geographic location of Israel. It represents the Israel that we're trying to get back to and the Israel that we came from. So, the, the dreidel has four sides. Nes, Gadol, Hayasham. The four letters on the dreidel, Nun, Gimel, Hay, Shin, represent the four exiles. The first one is Nun. Nun represents Nefesh, our soul. The Babylonians took our soul. What does that mean? The service in the temple was deeply connected to our nefesh, which is a certain level of our soul. There's different levels of your soul. Nefesh and ruach and neshama. If you read Leviticus, okay, which talks about all the various offerings, Chumash Vayikra, you'll see there all the time, it will say, nefesh ki sakriv, a soul that will bring a karban. Ki adam hu nefesh yichaper. The verse tells us that this, the, the soul will be atoned for with the blood. So the soul of the, of the offerings. When the Babylonians burnt down our temple, they were severing this place, the temple where our soul connected to God through the karbanos. So that's why the Babylonian exile is represented by the letter Nun. The Persian and Median exile, that's the story of Achashverosh and Haman, they didn't want to take our soul. They wanted to take our bodies. They wanted to kill us. They wanted to kill all of us. Genocide. Kill out every single Jewish person. Wipe their name and memory off the face of the earth. Their letter is Gimel, which stands for Guf, our bodies. They wanted to kill our bodies. Next, Shin. 
is Seichel. Seichel means our brain, our intellect. That is the Gaulus of Yavon, the Greeks. The Greeks went for our brains. They weren't trying to kill us. They were just trying to bring us over to their culture. And indeed, by the way, they were successful. Largely successful. The vast majority of Jews became Hellenistic Jews. Who would say things like, I see myself as a Helen, uh, you know, a Greek first, Jew second. Or, I'm culturally Jewish, but I'm really a, a citizen of the greater Greek empire. That's the kind of language they would have. They're, of course we have a Passover Seder, but you know, the, all the, the service things, the connections to God, the belief that the Jewish people are unique and singular people, well, that, that's really old. That's an old way of thinking. We're now the modern Hellenistic Jews. We have a broader, multicultural view of the world. We don't really believe there's any particularism, any uniqueness to the Jewish people. Of course, we like, we like the Passover Seder because oh, my wife makes a mean brisket and my grandmother, she still has those matzo balls. Oh, so fluffy. You know, she makes them with seltzer. That's the trick. Most of the Jews in the times of the Greeks, they got us. They got in our heads. Because think about it. The Greek exile was not an exile. We were still in Israel. When you think of exile, you think of being kicked off your land. But the Greeks somehow were able to exile us while we were in our land. How? By climbing into our brains and infecting our brains and making us believe their culture and what they were spewing and their messages of immorality and open sexuality and all the Greek ethos that unfortunately today are so pervasive in society still today. So they were coming, not for our bodies, no, 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 Jews, yeah, we, we love Jews, just as long as you don't be so Jewy. As long as you're not so Jewy. Just be like us and we can be fine. Just be like the Greeks, stop trying to be so different. So they came for our seichel, they came for our intellect, they wanted to poison our minds and our, our intellect with their ideas and their philosophies, their Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And then the last letter on the, the dreidel is hey. That stands for hakol, everything. Because the last exile, the one that we're still in, the 2,000 year long exile, has elements of everything. Number one, they destroyed our temple like the Babylonians. They tried to sever our soul connection to God by destroying our temple. Number two, they came after our bodies. How many times throughout this exile they tried to wipe us out? the Holocaust and the pogroms and the Inquisitions and the Crusaders. And they also came for our seichel, they came for our intellect, the enlightenment, the haskala, which comes from the word seichel. They've tried to poison us, and indeed, unfortunately, they've been so successful at poisoning so many Jews that so many Jews today walk around with an intellect that is so deeply antithetical to what Jews and Torah is all about. So this last one is Hakal, it's everything. So let's go through it again. Nun Gimel Hei Shin, on the dreidel. Neis Gadol Hayasham. Nun is Nefesh, is soul, the Beis HaMikdash, the offerings, the Karbanos, that was destroyed by the Babylonians, the Guf, the body, that was attempted to be destroyed by the Haman and, and the per- Parasumadai, the Persians and Medians, the Seichel that the Yivanim went after, our intellect, and Hakal, the one we're in right now, which has elements of all of them. But what's the dreidel? The dreidel is like this. The dreidel, you spin around on the axis. And the axis is a little tiny point, right? You have a dreidel, the vast majority is big, fat dreidel. 
it spins on a tiny little point. Whenever we think Kabbalistically of little points, we're thinking of the Yud. So the Yud is the smallest little point of, an, of a letter, right? All it needs to be for it to be letters, just a and that you could and that you could do it nicer. You could do it like this. There's all kinds of script ways to do it. But the Yid, the Yud, is a little pintle Yud. The whole world spins around on the Jewish people, and they're all trying to get us, but they can't touch us. They can spin around all they want, but they can never reach the access. They can never reach the inside. They can never contaminate the pure and beautiful Jew. They can drag us into exiles. And they could slap all kinds of ideologies into our brains. And they can try to torture us and they can kill us. But they can never, ever extinguish that little point, that little axis, that little pintalayid that's right inside of us. They run around and around and around. There's a pasuk in Tehillim that says, Saviv Rishaim Yishalachun, which means the Rishaim, the wicked ones, they go around us. Saviv and Saviv. What do we call a dreidel in Hebrew? Sivivon. They go around us and around us and around us, but they can't touch us. Same thing we said today in Hallel, right? We, said, we say to Hashem in the Hallel, Kol Goyim Sivavuni. All the nations, they dance, they, they, they spin around me. B'Shem Hashem Ki Amilam. In the name of Hashem, they're mute to me. Sabuni Kidvarim. They're surrounding me like a thicket of angry bees. Right? But, I push them away like fire to thorns. Just light them up. The secret of getting out of this exile, the secret of beating the four kings, is by recognizing that there's no Yish, by recognizing that no matter what other people are doing around us, we are able to overcome it all. We saw when Matis Yahu, the Kohen Gadol, starts a war with the Greek Empire. They were the most powerful people in the world. They had taken over thousands and thousands of miles, square miles of territory. Nobody in the world could stop them. Matis Yahu, a little Kohen Gadol. A Kohen Gadol. <laughs> you think he was trained in war? He was trained in peace. He's from the children of Aaron HaKohen. Be like the students of Aaron the high priest who loves peace and runs after peace. Kohanim were the most peaceful people. And they were going up against, they had no training, no formal training in warfare, and they're going up against the most amazing, powerful army with, with tanks, with elephants. But yet they recognize there's no Yish. We don't despair. We have God on our side. And there's no way we're going to live our life without the Torah. There's no way we're going to live our life without the gift that God gave us of, of, of the Torah and the Torah life. So we're going to fight back. And miraculously, they win. Because why? Because they can all dance around us. As long as we know who we are, they can never touch us. As long as we recognize that we are powered by a chilek elokamimal, we are powered by a little piece of God. And as long as we recognize that, Nobody can touch us. When the Jews came into the temple, the Greeks had destroyed all the, all the, the oil. Now there's an important concept in the service of the temple. It's called Tuma Hutra Betzibor. It's talked about extensively in Tractate Pesachim, in the Talmud. 
Tomahotra Betzira means that if the vast majority of the Jewish people are Tameh, or the vast majority of the vessels are Tameh, you're allowed to bring karbanos, you're allowed to bring offerings that are Tameh, that are ritually impure. But the Hashmonaim, the Maccabees, they said, no, 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 we're not doing this. Yes, all the oil here has been defiled, and we could, we could, we could bring, we could take the oil that's defiled, and we could pour it, and you could use it as the, as the manure, and it would count, it would work, it would be okay, it would be a kosher mitzvah, because Tomahotra Betzibor, because the Tomah is, is allowed, you're allowed to use Tameh things, when the vast majority of people have, are like that. They said, no, no, no. Often, we feel, you know what? Tomahotra Betzibor. Everyone else around me is doing immoral things. Everyone around me is living a hedonistic lifestyle. Everyone around me is doing whatever they want. They don't care. They're not working on themselves. They're not fighting to be a greater person. Why should I keep fighting? Everyone else is impure. Let me just be impure like everybody else. Let me just be like everybody else. No, no, no. The story of Hanukkah says, no, don't. Get in touch with your pentaliyid. Get in touch with that little spark inside of you. Look at your Hanukkah candles. Look at your Hanukkah candles and stare at them. And connect with them and meditate on them. And let that little pintaliyid, the fire of the little spark inside of you, you could see it externally right now on Hanukkah if you want to. And when you recognize that you have the fire of God inside of you, nothing phases you. And you're like the dreidel. All the nations of the world could dance and dance and dance around you, but they cannot touch you. And when we recognize this, when we recognize this power, then we are unstoppable. And that's how we're going to beat the four kings. Avram beat the four kings by not despairing, by not giving up, by not saying whatever, hashtag whatever. It's too difficult. Everyone around me is doing it, so I'll just do whatever I I'll just do whatever else is doing. Who cares? Go with the flow. No. Avram fought back against overwhelming odds, saying, I'm not going to despair because I know that God is fighting inside of me. And when we are able to do that, as the Jewish people, we're going to beat the four kings that we're struggling with, which is the four exiles. And mind you, we already finished three and, and, and point nine of them. Right? We've been through Bavel. We saw them. We faced them down. They're gone. We're here. We saw Paras and Madai, Persians and Medians. We saw them. We faced them down. They're gone. We're here. We saw the ancient Greeks. We faced them down. They're gone. We're here. All that's left is a little, little tiny bit of this final... Edom, this final tough, tough exile. But if we're able to recognize that we can fight back and that the greatest trick of the Yetzirah is to make us believe that we can't fight back, but as long as we're able to say, I am not despairing, no matter how many times I failed personally, no matter how long the Jewish people have failed to make it happen and failed to bring the Beis HaMikdash back, no matter how much failure I've personally seen or the Jewish people have seen, we're going to keep fighting against all odds. Then we're going to make it happen. A dreidel, when you spin a dreidel, could stop in two ways. Number one, you spin the dreidel, and you just wait. And eventually it runs out of centrifugal force or whatever it is, and it falls down. But there's another way. The other way is you just put your finger on it and stop it. Mashiach can come in one of two ways. This exile eventually will wind itself down and fall, and then we over, and the dreidel will fall over, and the four kings will fall over, and we're going to be redeemed. However, we also have the ability to put our finger on the dreidel and stop it. And we'll be able to do that when we understand the secret of the dreidel, of Neskadol HaYasham, of the Chashmonayim, of the people who fight back against all odds, of the people who see their own personal pain and trauma and suffering and challenge and repeated failures, but just keep fighting back. 
Because they say, I'm, I'm, I'm powered by God. This is going to work. And just to give you a little cherry on the top, if you take the gematria of the four letters on the dreidel, nun, gimel, he, shin, and you add them together, it equals 358. The gematria of Mashiach is 358. When we can learn the secret and the power of the dreidel and use it accordingly, we will bring Mashiach and the lights of Hanukkah will shine forever. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.